0: Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen, for receiving us so graciously. What a wonderful time we've had here. You know, I, I was here, I don't know the exact year, late 90s, and did the Sizemore lectures. Maybe maybe there's one or two of you left who are still around from those days. I don't know. But we had a wonderful time, but this campus is transformed. It is is—it is amazing to see um, Praise be to God. The good things that have happened here. We have other friends here from over the years. It's been wonderful to see you, and of course, my favorite New Testament scholar is here, and uh, my favorite seminary professor. So we're 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 uh, we're doing uh, you know as Dr. Allen said we're doing a here sermon slash lecture first. Peter chapter 2, Patrick and I are talking about a few passages in 1 Peter. Today, uh, this morning, 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, which is uh, the text on, uh, on slaves. But let, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us again. Father, we, uh, we bow before you now and we acknowledge that this is your word and your truth, And Lord, we need your help to understand, but even more to believe these things we read and that they would have an impression on our hearts. Lord, would your spirit come and help us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. So we recognize in 1 Peter, just a little bit of background, this, this book is written to sojourners, to, to exiles, to strangers. We see that in the very first verse. It is written to those who are exiles, who are dispersed throughout various areas of uh, modern-day northern Turkey. Yeah, we, we see that again in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, so that they're not at home in the world. They're misunderstood. They're misunderstood. They're discriminated against. They're abused. You know, you could read about it in chapter 4. It doesn't doesn't seem that the persecution in this book has has yet reached uh, the physical level. They're, They're abused. They're reviled. They're discriminated against. You know, the other thing that's interesting is the passages Patrick and I are going to look at today Peter focuses on, the, on those who are on the underside of authority. Well, what do I mean by that? The, Patrick's going to do the passage on uh, government in 2.13 through 17. He doesn't talk about what the, the governors should do, the leaders should do, but the citizens, right? How they should respond. I'm going to do the passage on slaves he doesn't talk about the masters, but the slaves, even the husband and wives, the wives get six verses, husbands only one. It's not that the husbands don't need more admonition, but, Paul, but Peter is focusing on those, those who are more prone to be mistreated, abused, suffering. I mean, that's, that's the theme of, of the letter. We might, we might think a bit of our own situation today i think we'd acknowledge right in the media in the universities and in big tech i mean we're we're on the underside are there christians in those enterprises uh, absolutely but but we would recognize wouldn't we we're not the dominant cultural voice anymore the cultural voice comes comes from unbelievers. And, and and we sense more and more in our culture that we are, we are marginalized. And that's what Peter's readers were feeling as well. I don't know anything about his faith, but surely many of you know this story could be replicated a number of times of Brandon Icke. He was the chief technical officer at Mozilla, and it came out a few, a few years ago, that he gave money to the cause of a pro-marriage amendment, and he lost his job. You know, that's what what we're talking about, right? The, 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 The forces, the cultural forces in our world are such that it's difficult to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, they were facing this in Peter's day, and we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2 with the slaves, and let's read that passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you, were, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So I see in this text, if I, to analyze it, I see, first of all, we see a call to submit for the slaves in verses 18 through 20. So we see a call to submit. Then we see Christ as an example in verses 21 through 23. Christ is an example in verses 21 through 23. And then in verses 24 and 25, we see Christ as our substitute. Christ is our substitute. So, just in the limited time we have, we'll look at that uh, briefly. First of all, let's consider slavery. Slavery: twenty percent or so of people in the Greco-Roman world were slaves. How did you become a slave? You could you could be captured in war. You could be you could be kidnapped. You you could be a slave from birth. You. You could sell yourself into slavery if you're in financial straits. You you could be bought as a slave. You you could be uh, employed as a slave if uh, you committed a crime. Now we recognize slavery in the ancient world was different from the American experience. It wasn't it wasn't race based. Slaves could be doctors they could be teachers they could be musicians the the slave could be better educated than the master and and you could you could get you through manumission you could be freed as a slave so it wasn't necessarily permanent however this is a big however uh, you know often people will say well slavery in the ancient world wasn't that bad that is not true <laughs> it was brutal and it was horrible. And, and, and I don't think we can say, oh, it was better than American slavery. They were different. But slaves had no legal rights. They could be pummeled uh, and beat by their masters, branded by their masters. They could be abused physically and sexually with no recourse. So it, it it was a it was a brutal life. Some slaves had to work in the mines, and there were there were major slave revolts in the mines. It was it was so difficult. But but Peter calls upon the slaves to submit. These rather str- sound strange to our ears. What do what do we make of this? And i th- I think I think we ought to say, in the New Testament. What we see is slavery. Slavery is regulated, but never commended or endorsed. They never endorsed the system, right? But it, but the but the, the evil social social system is regulated. I think that's a very important distinction. Slavery is not rooted in creation. Why wasn't there any polemic against slavery in the New Testament? Well, Christians had very little social influence. A comparison I often use is, in Japan, Christians you know, are a very small number. Abortion is legal in Japan. Uh, I don't know what Christians in Japan say about abortion. I'm sure they speak against it. But there's no use leading a societal revolution when they're so small. I don't think that's an excuse. I think that's the reality. You know, we read in Job 31, verse 15, Job says, didn't the one who created me in the womb also create the slave in the womb? I mean, there's a recognition there by Job, right? The, the slave and me were equally made in God's image. 1 Corinthians 7, 21, Paul says, if you can get your freedom, get it. Or, or in Philemon. He says, he, says, he says to uh, Philemon that you ought to treat uh, uh, Onesimus as your beloved brother. So I would argue, we don't have time to talk more about this, but if there's no social power, which the Christians didn't have, then the institution is to be transformed from the inside. If there is social power, the system should be abolished. Christians haven't always done well at that historically. But, it, would, but it, it did happen, right, historically. When there was social power, slavery was eventually abolished in the UK and the United States, for instance. So that's just a little bit of background. But slaves are called upon to submit with fear and reverence. I would argue in 1 Peter... Whenever he talks about fear, fear directed to whom? I I would contend, you check this out, fear in 1 Peter is always directed to God. He's not talking about fearing your master. It's fearing God. 117, fear God in your sojourn as exiles. And he says, I'll talk about this passage later, about wives fearing God. And and, and in chapter 2, verse 17... He says to fear God. So slaves are called upon to submit and to fear fear God. And then what does he promise them? What does he promise them in verses 19 through 20? I think he says, submit in the situation you're in. Can we apply this today to the employer employees? I think we can. I mean, the situation's different. Right, employees, hopefully aren't slaves. Right, so the situation's different, but can we apply it to that situation? the The fundamental stance of Christians is to follow authority. We're to be inclined to obey authority. That's that's you know, our our country, the United States, was founded in terms of rebelling from authority. I'm not gonna talk about that issue historically, but but we need to remember, we need to remember that the first sin of Adam and Eve was rebelling against authority, and that there can be an inclination in our hearts to buck authority. But but Peter says here the, the first inclination is a slave or any, in any situation in which you're under authority, your, your first inclination should be to follow that authority and to submit. I mean, that, that's, that's a call, right, to be, to be related to God. He says in verses uh, 19 and 20, I don't have time to get into this in detail, but he says, if you do that, you'll be rewarded. I think that's what he means by the word favor and grace there and credit. Did you see those words? He uses the word favor, or it's translated grace, or, or credit. And I don't think he means by grace, this is a sign of God's power in your life. But I think he means by the word favor or grace here, if you do this, if you submit, God will, God will reward you. There's a very interesting parallel. I don't have time to look at it in Luke chapter six verses thirty three and following, where he uses the word grace and reward I think as synonyms so so what is he saying he's saying if you if you submit you'll be you'll be rewarded by God still true today, and whatever station you're in if you're a slave you're apt to feel like in, My work is insignificant. I'm a slave. But Peter is saying to those on the underside of society, no, your your work matters. Maybe no one else in the world notices, but God sees what you're doing. And as unlikely as it seems to be, he is going to reward you finally. Finally. This is a sign of favor with God. Uh, clearly, we see in the text, as long as you're suffering, if you're suffering righteously, right? Not because of sin, but God, God will reward you for your work, your labor, as you submit to authority, even, even authority that is, that is unjust. Now, I just want to say a word. I don't think some people say this. I don't think Peter is saying, in terms of our present situation, or even in his situation, just just endure abuse. Obviously, if you can escape abuse, you do. But a lot of these people couldn't. You see. So I don't. I don't. Some people read this text and say. The Bible is saying you should just endure abuse. I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think he's saying endure abuse, but there are situations in life where people are abused and there's no exit. There is no release for them. And Peter's saying in that situation, that is horrific, isn't it? Peter is saying in that situation, you need to relate well to your master Resist as much as you can in that situation. If, it, if they're calling you to do something unrighteous, of course, you resist. But finally, God will reward you even if you're mistreated. What, what's the key that gives the strength to submit? Did you see it in the text? What does he say? He says, it is because of, in verse 19, because of consciousness of God. Where's the strength come from? The strength comes from a, one's relationship with God in the midst of, of difficulties. So that, that's, that's our first point, the call, the call to submit for slaves. And then we see, starting in verse 21, that Christ is an example Verse 21, for you were called to this. You were called to suffer, right? That's what this says. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Was, Was Christ abused, mistreated? He was. In this case, it was voluntary, wasn't it? He chose to suffer for our sake. But here, here Peter emphasizes some something that occasionally as evangelicals, at least. We don't emphasize sufficiently. Christ is our example in suffering. He's more than our example, but he's not less than our example. You know, these themes... Christ being our substitute and Christ being an example, they're often put together in the Scripture. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That takes place in a context where James and John are talking about who's the greatest, right? So, yes, distinctive substitutionary sacrifice, but also as an example of resisting wanting to be the greatest. John 13, the foot washing symbolizes what? The cleansing of our sins by Christ's blood. But at the same time, it also functions as an example of serving others. So I just encourage you as you read the scriptures, we see that in many, many places, But here's another thing that struck me in this text. When when you're suffering, when you're going through a hard time, you can ask yourself, does God care? You know, Job says in chapter 10 when he's suffering, does God know what it's like to be in the flesh? Does he know what I'm going through? In one sense, Job is saying, very nice to be God, (laughs) but it's incredibly difficult to be human. But we have a faith that is so amazing, isn't it? And distinctive, because the second person of the Trinity became man, didn't he? God knows. God knows what it's like to suffer what what comfort that can be. Honestly, life is hard, isn't it? And there are many puzzling things in life. At least I'm a kind of the kind of person that I'm, I'm sort of inclined to say, why is this happening? But one of my greatest comforts in life is Jesus suffered as well. Our, our, God, our God cares. He loves us. He suffered. And in his suffering, he is an example for us, more than an example, but not less than an example. We are to follow in his steps. We are to imitate Christ. We see in verse 22, he's unique. He did not commit sin. That cannot be said of any of us. It's it's interesting to see. does the New Testament ever say Jesus was sinless? Yes, it says it in a number of places. Did you notice it says it right here? He did not commit sin. He suffered, but he was sinless. And Peter's, Peter's whole discussion here, time is passing fast for me here, but is infused by Isaiah 53, right? And he, and he cites it here. And no deceit was found in his mouth, citing Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, no, no deceit, no self-deception in Jesus. He, he lived that perfect life. And then in verse 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. Have you ever been insulted? If you haven't, that'd be surprising. <laughs> if you haven't been insulted, you will be. When he was insulted, he did not insult and return everything in us. We want to insult somebody who insults us. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When you you suffer, when I suffer, it comes into my heart and mind. You're going to get it. You're going to get paid back. It's going to come back on you strong. Strong. For what you did. But here, Jesus is our example, a call for each of us to examine our own hearts and lives. He did not threaten, but, but here's the thing He entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly. There's the key again. How, how could He resist not being filled with a spirit of revenge and hatred? He, he gave it to God, right? He gave it to God. Uh, One of my very dear friends, he was mistreated when he was very young by a mission organization, not the IMB, but he was mistreated, and it was extremely difficult. He found some corruption in the organization. He revealed it, and they said, hide it, hide it. And he resigned at the end. He said, I'm not going to do that. But he had no power or influence, and so he was mistreated. And, and the feelings would come into him. He wanted, he wanted to threaten these people, but he said, time after time, you know, these things don't go away in a day, Maybe not, maybe not during your whole life. He just said, I had to give it to God. I had to say, God... You'll make it right. So, you know, the freedom not to threaten doesn't come from the thought, well, I don't care what happens. That's not what the text says, right? He's not saying, I, well, I don't care what happens. What about these abusive masters? God, God will see to it. that right is done. We have to know that. God cares. God finally judges. God's going to make everything right. Even Jesus... Had to believe that as a man, didn't he? God's going to make everything right. It's the worst miscarriage of justice in history. Then finally, verses 24 and 25, we see that Jesus is our substitute as well not just our example, but our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I mean, here here we see, maybe I have space to look at this for a second. Here we see Isaiah 53. For example, Isaiah 53, verse 4, the suffering servant, he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Or verse uh, 12, it says, he bore the sin of many. What does Peter tell us here? He himself bore our sins in his body, in his suffering. He doesn't say on the cross. Isn't that interesting? He could say on the cross, but he says on the tree. Nobody in the Greco-Roman world talked about Dying on the cross is dying on a tree, but it comes from Deuteronomy 21, 23, right? He who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. So he's appropriating that Old Testament text, isn't he? And he's saying Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment we deserved as our our substitute. He says, and again, citing Isaiah, by by his wounds, you have been healed. I think it's interesting that he mentions the wounds, don't you? Because certainly slaves received wounds. They were beat. And he's saying, again, Jesus knows what it's like to be wounded and beaten. By his wounds, you're healed. I think the healing here isn't physical healing, but spiritual healing. The healing that comes from trusting in Christ. So all this happens, right? So that we might die to sins and live live for righteousness. Peter doesn't concentrate on what's going to happen to the masters. Certainly, they will be judged if they don't repent. Abusive. Abusive. Masters, But he concentrates on the life of the slaves themselves, of their own own transformation in their lives, that that the slaves themselves who trust in Christ, or whatever your station in life, that that you need to be transformed. I think there's a lesson for us, right? Our focus should never be on the transformation other people need. The focus should always be on ourselves, which is one of the reasons I think in verse 25, why did we need Christ's substitutionary death for you are like sheep going astray? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. There's Isaiah again. The slaves themselves, even though they're mistreated and on the underside of life, the slaves themselves. They were sinners; they too had gone astray. But now they've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So, what, what is what is Peter saying there? He's saying, "Slaves, all gathered in this room, were not just victims of sin, right?" We are all the victims of sin. Patrick, in part, is a victim of my sin, because, as a father, I'm a sinner. Uh, so it is true, it is true that we're all victims of sin to some extent, right? But that's not the fundamental truth, even for slaves. What, what does he draw them to? No, no, you, you have gone astray yourself. And that can be really difficult to remember, even if we're counseling someone who's suffered so much. And of course, we want to identify with them and sympathize with them and acknowledge that they're victims of sin. Of course, that's true. Peter's not denying that. But he reminds them. And we're all reminded, no, it's also true, you're perpetrators of sin. Even on the undersigned. You're perpetrators. So what, what is the word for us? I would say we, we have a culture today that specializes. I understand this. Hopefully you don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Because, yes, oppressors need to be called out, right? I, I believe that. Oppression is wrong. But we need to be careful. What is Peter saying here? We need to be careful if we're on the underside of giving way what? To outrage, to to anger, to self-righteousness that can consume us. Such anger and outrage and self-righteousness. I mean, there is a place for anger, but if that's the dominant message in our life. I think Peter is saying, we're no longer living like Jesus. I mean, that's a great temptation, isn't it? To be, to be filled with outrage for injustices that have been done. But my friend, right, who was mistreated, he couldn't live because he was mistreated. He couldn't live with permanent outrage because that'd destroy him ultimately, to be living f- full of anger all the time. He, he had to release it. And one way, not the only way, one way to release it is to realize, you know, we're all sinners ourselves. We also all fall short of the glory of God. We also have mistreated others. It isn't only those who are in power who sin, but also all of us maybe in more invisible ways, we have also sinned against our God and mistreated others. So Peter says, I think this is a positive message, live in freedom. Live in joy. The joy of life is following Christ because that's the happiest way to live, isn't it? To live with joy and forgiveness of others and to be filled with the power that our God gives. So as we pray, let's pray for God's work in our lives. Our great God, the Almighty and Transcendent One, we we praise you because of your greatness. And yet, Father, in your great love, You've sent your Son, who himself has come in love to save us from ourselves and from our sin. And, and Lord Jesus, you have experienced what it means to be a human being and to suffer and to be mistreated and abused. And yet, Lord, you never sinned. You lived a life of joy in the presence of your Father. And Lord, we pray by your grace and through your Spirit, as sinners who often confess our sins, but we pray that we would be like Jesus, forgiving those who mistreat us, living in a way that is pleasing to you, and bringing honor to your great name, so that others will see the glory and beauty and loveliness of our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.